else, I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and find uh, Revelation chapter 2. And as you're turning there, let me give you this as well. We're trying to find uh, new ways to engage with you uh, during this time and to help assist you uh, as you, you know, listen to the sermons week in and week out. And so if you are here and you have on either your cell phone or a tablet uh, the Version Bible app, just kind of raise your hand. If you don't and you like using technology, I would encourage you to download it. If you have it on your phones and you have your phones available, check this out. If you go to that next one, if you'll download that app onto your device, right, and then when you open the app, on the bottom right hand is a little toggle button or whatever. If you'll click on that button, it will show you these options that are there on the right. You'll see the verse of the day, videos, and then there's this thing called events. If you'll push events, and then it'll go to this other screen that's there on the left, uh, you'll need it to be able to recognize your location, so you might have to accept or approve that on your phone. If you'll recognize the location, then that screen will load, and then if you'll just touch that uh, First Baptist Kingsland, click on that, and then what will open up is right there on the right. Anybody doing that right now? Am I? Yeah, did, you, did it work for you? Yeah, so check it out. Now on your phones or tablets, you can follow along with the message, with the verses, with the sermon notes. So uh, you actually can see right now where I'm going with the message, but I hope that doesn't mean you check out on me at this moment. Hope you'll stay with me. I try not to put too much information in there for you to drift away, just enough to kind of keep you going. And you can fill in, you can add your own notes in, in your phone or on your tablet. Anyway, it's just another opportunity for you to try to stay connected and engaged during this time. Um, I want to begin this year by looking at Revelation chapter 2 and 3. These two chapters, we find seven letters that have been given to us by Christ and to seven churches that were spread throughout Asia. And so Jesus knows the strength and weaknesses of each local congregation. Therefore, he's able to give them both the proper criticisms and compliments that they deserve. Now, don't forget, before we get into Revelation chapter 2, don't forget that before God judges the world, he will first judge his own people. Scripture tells us, it will be on the screen, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse number 17, for the time has come for judgment, and it must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news. And so in these letters, over the course of these seven weeks, I pray that we'll find great encouragement as well as uh, for us to be personally challenged to take a proper inventory of our own lives and to make whatever changes are necessary so that we too can hear and heed the warnings that are contained within these letters. And speaking of letters, let's go here real fast. Uh, throughout the scriptures in the New Testament, we see different letters written by different individuals. We have letters from Paul, from Peter, from John, 
from James and from Jude, and, and they're writing in a letter style that is familiar uh, with the, the first century. And, and so in their letter writing style, typically these epistles will follow a five-fold formula in their letters, which means that most of the letters that you'll read in the New Testament will start off with the identification of the author and its recipient. Then there is a formal greeting that happens. There's a, uh, a prayer that's usually contained. Then there's a main message, and that's like part four. And then it ends with a formal conclusion. So that's kind of like the, the style that was typical for that time. But here, Jesus gives seven letters, and he takes on a completely different style. He has a different five-fold method in addressing the churches. And so I'll give you those uh, five steps that he works through, because we're going to look at each of those steps through each of the letters as we work through them. So, so what Jesus does in, in his letters, he starts off by identifying a characteristic uh, of, of the person who's sending the letter. So he identifies a characteristic of the sender. Then from there he goes and gives a compliment to the recipients. Following the compliment, he gives a criticism. Following the criticism, he gives a command. And then following the command, he gives a commitment to all who overcome. Or this is the commitment that we can expect to receive if we will heed and hear the message that's contained within the letter. So this morning, we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So in this first letter, uh, Christ compliments the Ephesian church for their many good deeds. But he has a, a criticism for them. And the criticism is the fact that they have these good deeds, but they've lost their first love. And so look at verse number 1. Begins and says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in the right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Each of these seven letters are addressed to the angel of the church. Now, Revelation chapter 1 first mentions these angels. So it's good to, let's go back and look at Revelation chapter 1 real quick. Because in chapter 1, verse number 16, we'll see the identification of these angels as being seven stars. And then we'll see in verse 20 that there's seven stars in the hands of our Lord. Follow along as I read. Look at uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse number 16. It says, in his right hand. He held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So in case you're wondering, well, what are these seven stars that he's talking about? Then if you'll go to verse number 20, there it says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the seven stars represents the angels to the seven churches. And so in, in starting chapter 2, verse number 1, it says, to the angel. The, the Greek word for that is angelos. And angelos would, would be translated as messenger. And so the messenger could either be a, a earthly 
a messenger or a heavenly messenger. Now here the idea is that of an earthly messenger. So each letter that Jesus gives travels the same journey. It begins with Jesus, then it goes to John, then it goes to the messenger, and then it arrives at the congregation. So the question becomes, well, who are these messengers or, or, or who are these angels? I think the best suggestion is that these earthly messengers were actual uh, pastors or, or spiritual leaders of the congregation. For all, it's the responsibility of the pastor uh, to shepherd the flock that's been entrusted to their care. And, and what could be more pastoral than to convey a direct message from our Lord to the congregation? And yet keep in mind that John, man, he had, he had a heart of a pastor uh, seeking to encourage those within the church, especially during times of great difficulty. So, so let's look at the formula that Jesus uh, uses. Remember, it starts off with the characteristic of the sender. So go back to verse number 1. It says, To the angel or to the messenger of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So here the, the Lord emphasizes the characteristic that he is the one that holds the seven stars and he is the one who walks among the golden lampstands. Now this is based upon the portrait of Jesus that's given to us in Revelation chapter 1. Like go back, look at verse number 13. In verse number 13 of chapter 1, it says, And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. So in chapter 1, here Jesus is mentioned as simply being among the seven lampstands. So Jesus is among the churches. But now in chapter 2, we see Jesus is now walking among them, observing them, watching them, looking carefully at what they're doing and how they're, they're doing it. And so because he's the one that's been observing, because he's the one that's been walking among them, then he and he alone is the one that's able to give them the proper uh, compliments and criticisms. And so it goes into the compliments next. Look at verse number 2. It says, I know your works your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. I think it's extremely gracious for our Lord to start his letter off with identifying compliments to give to the church. And so to begin with, Jesus says, I know, I see, you are a serving church. He identifies them as being a serving church, busy uh, going about and doing the work of our Lord. He says, I know your works. I, I know you're a serving congregation. But not only are they a serving church, it's a church that's a sacrificing church as well. He says, I know your works. I know your labor. And then he says, your toil, that word toil means to labor to the point of exhaustion. So the Ephesian believers paid a heavy price for serving the Lord. 
not only did they work, they worked hard. They were exhausted from their efforts of serving one another. So they're a serving church. They're a sacrificing church. But not only that, they're identified as being a steadfast church. So he says, I know your works, your toil, and then your patient endurance. That word patient endurance means uh, more specifically endurance under, under trial. Uh, endurance through difficult seasons. In other words, they, they kept going, they kept serving even when times got tough and difficult. They didn't quit when life became demanding. They didn't stop serving when life got a little difficult. They continued to serve in the midst of their hardship. So they're a serving church. They're a sacrificing church. It's a steadfast church. Not only that, the Ephesian church was also a separated church. It goes on and says, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil and tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Which means that this was a church that carefully examined the teachings of others. It was a church that, that carefully examined what is being taught to the congregation. Not only did they examine it, they were able to properly identify what was true and what was false. And they wouldn't allow that false teaching to infiltrate their congregation. And thankfully for us, we're given some guidelines as to how we too can guard ourselves and our congregations from being infected by false teaching. Scripture says in 1 John chapter 4, he gives us a test for discerning false prophets. In 1 John chapter 4, beginning of verse 1, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets had gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit who does not confess Jesus is not from God. So there's a general test that you can apply to, to help determine if something is true or false. And thankfully, specifically to the Ephesian church, Paul had already warned the elders of the church about uh, being on guard from false teaching. If you're looking at your scriptures, turn back to Acts chapter 20. Let me show you what, what Paul has to say to the Ephesian elders. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is speaking to the elders of this church. It's the same church that the letter's written to here in uh, Revelation chapter 2. And so Paul's writing to them in Acts chapter 20, and then beginning in verse number 8, Paul says, So guard yourselves and God's people, feed and shepherd God's flock, his church, purchased with his own blood, over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as elders, or, or I'm sorry, as leaders. I know that false teachers like vicious wolves will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock. Even some men from your own group will rise up and distort, distort the truth in order to draw a following. Watch out. Remember the three years I was with you, my constant watch and care over you night and day, and my many tears for you. So, so Paul, 
has given them the, the warning, be very careful. And here, Jesus is giving them the compliment in Revelation chapter 2 that apparently they heeded well to the warning of Paul and have done the very thing that Paul warned them. They were careful. They tested the spirits. They tested the teaching. And they protected the church from receiving false teaching. So, so it's a serving church, a sacrificing church, a steadfast church, a separated church. Not only that, the Ephesian church was also a suffering church. It goes on to say in verse number 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. The church was made up of people who patiently bore their burdens, who worked, served, who toiled, uh, without fainting. And they did it all for the glory of God. Now, if we were to examine this church today, and we, we were to watch it and look at it, we'd probably say, man, that's a great church. I mean, that's a church that we all ought to follow. But, but here, Jesus, the one who walks among the lampstand, he looks at the church, and he has a different takeaway. As he looks at the church and identifies all the good that they're doing, he says, yeah, that's all good, but it's not enough. And then he goes into the criticism for the church. Look at verse number four. He says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. So this serving, sacrificing, steadfast, separated, suffering church, they had a problem. The problem was a heart problem. Jesus said that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. And so what is this love uh, that they had at first? What is, it, what is it talking about? There's many different interpretations. Some, some think that Jesus is saying that they have lost their, their love for Christ. Perhaps they lost their love for each other. Perhaps they lost their love for the lost. Perhaps they lost their love in actual serving which one? I think it's all. I think they're all connected one to another. Some say that going back to, to Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul's like, look, you can do all this, but if you do all this, if you teach, if you prophesy, but you do all that without love, then what is it worth? Jesus is saying, this one charge I have against you, you've lost that. <laughs> That song that comes to my mind, you lost our loving feeling. I'll not sing it for you. Now you're all thinking about it. What's clear to me is that when Jesus is walking among this church and observing what it is they do and how they're doing it, that this church has either fail to fully understand and appreciate God's love for them, or they have failed to fully demonstrate that love towards other people. Oh yeah, they displayed works, they had labor, and they did so with patience, but these qualities were not motivated by a love for Christ, a love for each other, or a love for the lost. So make no mistake, yeah, what we do is important, but equally important is why we do 
what we do. And so this rebuke is actually in contrast to what Paul had written to the church about 35 years previously. So 35 years before Revelation chapter 2's letter comes into that church's life, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I've not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly. They're like one generation removed. They started off so well, but here now Jesus is saying, hey, that thing that you used to excel in, love for another, is the very thing that you lack in your life right now. Make no mistake, labor is no substitute for love. Neither is purity a substitute for passion. The church must have both if it's to please God. I think today's church, I think our church needs to, to pay very close attention to the warning that's contained here. The warning that says orthodoxy and service for God isn't enough. Jesus wants our hearts to be fully connected and engaged through the whole process. He doesn't want us just scurrying about being busy doing things just for the sake of doing things. He wants us to serve him, to serve one another, to reach and to labor for the lost out of a deep abiding love that resides within us all. And so notice the command that he gives to the church in, in verse number 5 and verse 6. He commands them and says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, and then he compliments them again. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So again, he's encouraged them, and he gets them hard, he gives them a criticism, he gives them a command, and he still follows that up with, with a little bit more encouragement in their lives. And I think that Jesus' command to this loveless church, it, it gives us a, a threefold remedy that if this church would apply to their lives, then they would receive the blessing that God has for them. But I also think this threefold remedy can be applied to each and every one of our lives as well. So what is Jesus' command to their church? What does he say to them? Well, first and foremost, interestingly enough, he says to remember. He says to remember. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. So that word remember literally means not just a one-time remembrance, but to keep on remembering. Remember that which you have lost. And cultivate a desire to regain that love, that zeal, that enthusiasm, that passion that you once had for God and for others. And as you're remembering that, and when you remember, then repent. So first remember, then repent. To repent means to acknowledge your loveless attitude towards God. Acknowledge that loveless attitude towards other people. And then determine to be different and to do different. Don't just acknowledge it without the determination. Acknowledge it and then be determined for change. 
to, to, to go back and, and to honor God fully and completely. And here's the thing. When you do what you always did, then you're going to get what you always got. So remember. Do you remember a time in, when you're, in your life when you were just so enthusiastically passionate about God and the church? Can you remember that time? Maybe, hopefully, you're living in that time right now. But if you're not, remember. Remember that love, that excitement, that energy that kept you going to serve God and to serve other people. And as you're remembering that, then repent. Repent. Acknowledge the the lack of love in your heart and your life. Be determined to do something different. And so we remember that we must repent. And then finally, we return. Jesus said, do the works you did at first. That is, do the works that were motivated by a love for God and a love for other people. The Ephesian church ultimately was a careless church made up of careless believers. Believers who neglected their love for God and their love for each other. I wonder, I wonder if we're not guilty of doing that same thing today. You need to notice that this command comes with a serious warning of the consequences for the church if it fails to remember, repent, and return. Jesus said, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, that ought to stand out to us. That ought to put a little righteous fear in us. Although uh, Christ has promised to build his church up worldwide, we see that promise in Matthew chapter 16, verse number 18. Although there will be the building up and the strengthening of the universal church, he guarantees permanence to no individual congregation. I want you to realize, maybe you don't realize, but this year, there will be in America between six to 10,000 churches that will close down. That's between 100 and 200 churches every week will end up shutting down. Think about that. 100 plus churches that are gathered today in some way, somehow, most likely, it'll be the last time they assemble together as a local congregation. I think this pace will accelerate unless we are willing to remember, to repent, and to return ourselves. And so in calling the Ephesian church to repentance, Jesus was asking them to change their attitude as well as their affections. They were to continue in their service, absolutely. Not simply because it was right, but because it was now serving because they love God and they love others and they love the lost. And he warned them that if they do not repent, then the light of their witness in Ephesus would be extinguished. What a strong warning. Imagine what would happen to the people in this area if First Baptist Kingsland shut down. 
if this was our last time together, would they even miss us? Would they even know? Oh, I believe that if we ourselves would remember, repent, and return, they absolutely would miss us. Uh, As this new year is beginning, fresh opportunities for us all. I love do-overs, do you not? Do-overs are so refreshing. Like, it's a strange year. Both uh, the Longhorns and the Cowboys won. I don't know what that means for us all, but that means something. It's an odd feeling. In all seriousness, sitting before us is a year filled with endless opportunities for us to seek to glorify God by serving Him and serving one another, to be passionately committed to reading God's Word, And applying that word to our lives so that we can be different. We're to be different. God told us, I I shared this with my Sunday school class this morning. In 1 Peter chapter 3, he says that we're a chosen generation. A royal priesthood. Like like God chose us. We're a royal priesthood. We're, We're set apart. We're to be holy because he's holy. In other words, we're not supposed to act like everybody else in this world. There should be something distinctly different and unique about us because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. So here he gives them uh, the command that they should follow, and then he wraps it up with a commitment to all who overcome. So for everyone who hears and heeds this message, then he gives this commitment. Look at verse number 7. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Christ's commitment to the faithful believers in Ephesus, to to the faithful believers everywhere who will hear and heed his message, is that they will eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The tree of life was first told to us about in scriptures in Genesis chapter 3. We find it there at the center of the Garden of Eden. Later, by the time you get to Revelation chapter 22, uh, the tree of life reappears in the new Jerusalem. It is the tree of life that bears abundant fruit. And all that eat of that fruit will live forever. What a beautiful promise and commitment that our Lord makes to us. And this promise isn't reserved to just a special group of individuals. No, it's the normal expectation for all who faithfully put their lives in the hands of the Savior. God's purpose for mankind has always been for eternal life. And the fall of Genesis 3 didn't change that plan. From Genesis 3 to the rest of the Bible, it all documents God's commitment to our redemption and having an eternal fellowship with Him. Because it all goes through Jesus now. You put your faith and heart and life in Jesus, faithfully enduring to the end, and His promise to you is that you'll be able to partake from the tree of life that's in the paradise of God. How beautiful is that? Let me ask you this morning, 
Have you lost that love that you once had? Have you lost that love for God? Have you lost the love for, for serving? This church bore patiently under great times of difficulty, but they were still complimented in the fact on how much they labored and toiled to the point of exhaustion. I just firmly believe that as long as we have life, as long as we draw breath in this world, then God has a purpose for our lives. And we're not done serving. The secret is, even when we die and we live with Him forever, we're not done serving either. We get an eternal commitment and call to serve Him. Do you love Him? Do you love the church? Do you love the lost? Do you love the lost in order to be enough to be inconveniencing your life to the point that you're willing to change your schedule in order to have communications with the lost? Or, Or do you simply try to serve God when it's convenient for you? What I've discovered is most of the time, Serving Him becomes really inconvenient in our lives and in our schedules. And I think it's a beautiful thing. Let me encourage you with this. Some of you took the challenge last week to read through the Scriptures this year. And whether you're on that same plan that I introduced to us last week or not, it really doesn't matter what plan that you're following. What matters is that you have a plan in your life to be reading God's Word. I'm even more so aware and sensitive to that following a conversation that I had this week. Interesting thing happened in in my life where uh, it was a Wednesday night. Uh, We had just placed Canaan to bed. Uh, The lights are out around the house, so it's dark out there. I always thought that the rule of etiquette is if it's dark and there's no lights, then leave that house alone. But apparently not everybody believes that. And so there's this knock at the door, which triggers barking in the house, which triggers, oh, no, what about Canaan? He's going to wake up, and we got to start this process all over again. Anyway, so there's this knock on the door. So I go to the door, and I open the door, and lo and behold, right before me, two young men stood before me, two young men dressed in black and white who wanted to have a conversation with me. And I immediately just looked at these two guys, and I'm like, I just don't have the time for this tonight. And to which they asked me, oh, so are you not a religious person, sir? And I was like, you don't. I'm telling you guys, I don't have time for this conversation tonight. And they're like, oh, well, why not? We just want to tell you. I go, guys, look, here's the deal. We're going to say the same word, but we're not going to mean the same thing. So if you want to talk about Jesus, I'd love to talk to you about Jesus. But my Jesus and your Jesus are two completely different Jesuses. If you want to talk about the Jesus that's recorded in the Scriptures, I'll have that conversation with you. But if you want to talk to me about the Jesus that's recorded in your little blue book, then that's not the same Jesus that I identify and recognize with. And so I'm having this conversation with them. And meanwhile, I've already captured one dog that tried to escape. And so I'm holding a dog, trying to shut the conversation down, in which my son, I'll just call you around on this, he opens the door so that he can retrieve his dog from me heard me say, no, 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 you're wrong, immediately went into the, oh, my dad, yeah, he's got this, shuts the door and leaves me with his dog. 
And so now I'm trying to have this conversation of awareness with a, a couple of uh, Mormon missionaries that are at my door holding the dog. I'm trying to shut it down. But one guy seems uniquely interested in what it is that I'm saying. And then feeling the sensitivity change in my heart, I just felt well, maybe we should have this conversation. So I asked the guy, I said, look, I, don't, I really don't have time tonight. This is not a good time. They're like, well, can we come by again? I'm like, no, don't come by again. Uh, how about we meet somewhere? You have plans for tomorrow. And so I met him for lunch on Thursday. And then from, so from Wednesday night, I did my crash course and trying to refresh my memories of, of what I needed to know. And I go and meet with these guys on, on Thursday. And I take with them. I had to find it because I knew I had it. But I took my King James Bible because that's the only Bible that they're remotely acknowledge that that translation so i made sure i had the right translation of scripture with me i sat down with these guys and and began to engage in the conversation with them and at one point i told them that like i know i'm working at a disadvantage in this conversation because of what your book says about me and they looked at me rather confused and i said well if you'll turn to second nephi chapter, I don't remember, I think it's chapter 24, verse 6 or whatever. If you'll turn to that and just read that for me real quick. And so the one guy that had the book opened it up. The guy that sat across me had no idea what I was talking about. I could tell he didn't know what was going on in this conversation. And so the guy read it, and basically it says in that verse, it says, uh, you fool who says uh, the Bible, the Bible, I have the Bible and I need nothing else. And so I said, I know that I'm working at the advantage that you think I'm a fool because I am the one that thinks that I have the Bible and this is all that I need. But if you want to have this conversation about this, then let's talk. And the, the guy that was across me had no idea really what I was going in. At one point, he looks at me and he's like, who are you? And I said, oh, man, I'm just a dude that loves Jesus. And so I try not to tell them you know, what I do or anything like that, because I didn't want to shut down the conversation. I just wanted to have it with these guys. But I could tell I made another reference to their blue book, gave them a chapter and a verse to read, and he just looked confused. And I just asked him, I said, have you read this book? He's like, no, I've never read it. And I was like, wait, you've just committed two years of your life to go wherever they send you to, to talk to other people, to try to tell them to believe that what you, uh, uh, that's written in your book, but you haven't even read the book. And, and the other guy, he, 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 he's read it. He was the defender. But the, the guy that hadn't read it, you know, he was so interested in, in what I had to say. And, and so I get home on, on Thursday. My family wants to hear all about it. They can't wait. Hey, Dad, what happened at lunch today? And I'm telling them, and I'm just so, like, I'm just so blown away by, by the fact that he hadn't even read their book, and he's trying to convince me that what they believe is real. And I'm telling that to my family, to which my daughter, she just basically says, Dad, that's uh, kind of like, isn't that what we do? And I was like, oh, yeah, we do. How many of us have been believers for X amount of years, and you still haven't even read the book? Don't even know what it all says. How, if you're not going to read the book, are you going to be equipped and prepared to give the reason for the hope that is in you? Man, so develop a plan. Open his word. 
Not just read it for knowledge's sake, but read it, read it for wisdom's sake. Wisdom is the application of knowledge in your life. So don't just take it in for words. Take it in and then read it with the perspective, all right, God, this is what you said. This is what you meant. Now how do I apply this to my life? Man, if we we'll can make that kind of commitment, if we'll look back in our lives and if we'll be honest enough to say, yeah, I can remember there was a season in my life when all I wanted was Jesus. All I cared about was Jesus. I couldn't wait to read my Bible. I couldn't wait to get to church. I couldn't wait to pray with other people. I couldn't wait to tell other people about my love for the Lord. Remember that. Keep remembering that. And then repent for the loveless attitude and the careless nature that we've taken on in life today. And then get back. Re-engage. Go back to work with the love for God, the love for his church, the love for one another, and the love for the lost. Next week, we'll pick up on, on verse number eight. But in this moment, let's pray. We'll have a time of invitation. I'll be here at the front to talk, to pray, to encourage you in any way. Would you bow your heads and pray with me, please? Father, thank you for this time. God, help us to fully put our trust in you, place our faith in your Son, and that we would commit our hearts, our lives, our everything to serving you, to serving one another, loving you, loving each other, and loving the lost. May we never stop. God, be pleased by what you see during this time the decisions that we make. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Church, let's stand together.